Welcome to Godsplaining, contemplative preachers, contemporary age. Each week, join the Dominican friars as they consider all things Catholic. Welcome back to Godsplaining. I am Father Gregory Pine, chiming in here from Freiburg, Switzerland. Uh, recently returned from visiting the United States. I don't know why I find that funny already, but now I'm in day 1,000 of a 12,000-day quarantine, so it's a real blessing to be here with other people. Uh, those other people being Father Jacob Bertrand and Father Patrick Briscoe. Father Jacob Bertrand, how are things in D.C.? Things are things are good. Um, yeah, not much going on. I don't know. I, I was... I found myself trying to think of something interesting. I think last time we were on an episode or a few times ago, you were talking about avalanches. I was like, well, I have nothing to top that. So I don't really have anything more to say about what's going on. But things are good. Just getting through Lent and looking forward to not Lent. And that's it. Yeah. Nice. Excellent. Father Patrick, how are things in Providence? Uh, last time you spoke of everyone breaking their Lenten promises. How would you say the university is holding up under the strain of this difficult season? Yeah, I think it's important to include, you know, that sort of like Irish despondent nature to which I tend about the human condition. And uh, uh -huh. so, you know, I'm not quite to total depravity, but I'm as close as you can get and remain a Roman Catholic in good standing. <laughs> uh, so, so we continue along that along that route up here. Um, I will say, however, that it's nice that the 11 months of February are over hmm. and uh, and that, that we have now progressed into something not February, because um, everything, literally anything, actually is better than February. So, yeah, that's, Cheers. Uh, that's where I'm at. I don't know exactly what I pictured uh, the weather in Switzerland to be like before I came here, but I have in my mind Alps, and I have my mind like Alps that are over whatever, like 15,000 feet tall. So I just pictured mm -hmm. everything being ro like rocky, mountainous, and snow-capped, including the towns. Um, I don't know exactly how that worked, but I was expecting that it to be you know, like minus a billion degrees. Uh, I keep saying hyperbolic numbers. I should rein that in. I expected it to be cold here every day and all the time, but it turns out it's like the same temperature in Freeburg as it is in Washington. And why I'm recounting this, I know not, but um, maybe somebody's interested. We haven't found that listener yet, but but someday we shall. You um, can start a you could start a school for renewed Thomism in Duluth, Minnesota. You know, if you're looking for that nice like sub zero, you know, come to Duluth to sit in a room and study Thomism. Exactly, like plug in your engine block and read about the you know humanity of Christ. Um, yeah, maybe may, no, I don't think that's going to happen anytime <laughs> soon. Um, so uh, here we are. This is the third Sunday of Lent. Uh, so we're getting on to about halfway through. Which is, which is kind of wild to think about. Um, so it's also a time that's uh, uh, important for catechumens as things begin to ramp up for them with scrutinies uh, and their kind of beginning of the process of the right of election and then advancing towards the reception of sacraments at Easter. So it's a time of, of kind of heightened intensity and heightened expectation in the church. So we will do, as we always do, lead in uh, with the collect of the Mass and then begin our commentary on the readings of the day. So let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God, author of every mercy and of all goodness, who in fasting, prayer, and almsgiving have shown us a remedy for sin, look graciously on this confession of our loneliness, that we who are bowed down by our conscience may always be lifted up by your mercy. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right, the first reading. Uh, Father Patrick, would you read it for us? 
A reading from the book of Exodus. In those days, God delivered all these commandments. I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that place of slavery. You shall not have other gods besides me. You shall not carve idols for yourselves in the shape of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters beneath the earth. You shall not bow down before them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, inflicting punishment for their father's wickedness on the children of those who hate me, down to the third and fourth generation, but bestowing mercy down to the thousandth generation on the children of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave unpunished the one who takes his name in vain. Remember to keep holy the Sabbath day. Six days you may labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. No work may be done, then, either by you or your son or daughter, or your male or female slave, or your beast, or by the alien who lives with you. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord has blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that you may have a long life in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male or female slave, nor his ox or ass, nor anything else that belongs to him. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's interesting to look, or if you were to look at St. Augustine and then St. Thomas Aquinas following St. Augustine, they pair the the Beatitudes from Matthew 5 with the Ten Commandments, and then to sort of to sort of elucidate how it is through the course of salvation history and through the course of the the old law as inscribed in the Ten Commandments and the new law, the new covenant and Christ. Um they they pair them together so as to kind of elucidate the truths and the relationships there. But it all it all kind of starts here with the Ten Commandments. And I think think that um, when we when we often when we uh, look at the Ten Commandments, when we approach the Ten Commandments, we can see them as perhaps something foreign or something kind of outdated or something that we kind of have to, we know they're there, but we don't know, you know, we may be able to name like three or six of them or this sort of thing. And they, they, they just kind of, they're kind of lifeless. They're kind of just there in the background, but really, if if we look at what the what's proposed to us in the Ten Commandments, or especially from this from this reading in in the Book of Exodus, is this is really um, really at the heart of God's revelation um, of Himself, but also of us. The Second Vatican Council beautifully says that uh, that Christ reveals man to man Himself, and we begin to have that revelation in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, and here in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments often seem, or or when we think about church, the 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 law of God or the law of the church, it often seems or can be taken um, as a sort of imposition on us, something that's imposed upon us that we have to um, somehow conform ourselves and conform ourselves to something that that isn't us, isn't human, is is unhuman or inhumane. But really, if we look at the Ten Commandments and what God is teaching us in those commandments, he's not giving us some sort of external law that is somehow contrary to, to what it means to be a human being. It's it's just the opposite. In fact, he's he's simply revealing what it means to be a human being. 
what it means to be a human being. So the in in honoring God and worshiping God, it's not something that's imposed on us that we that we um, you know somehow have to do that's unnatural, but rather speaks about what the, speaks about the human heart. That a, a human being, our hearts, men, the hearts of men and women, long to worship God. And when we live our lives in accord with, you know, with worshiping the one God, we're, we're, we're living what it truly means to be a human being. We could say that about all of the commandments. Um, they're not arbitrary standards, but they're human standards that are already written into our hearts. So in this, when God gives us the law, he's simply showing us more and more um, what it means to be uh, a happy, flourishing, healthy, integrated, wh- however we want to describe it, human being. The beauty is, is that we aren't, um, as, as Christians, unlike the Israelites, when they received the law, we, we have the grace of Christ that, that helps us to live the law, that helps us to live the, you know, the, the fulfillment of the old law in the new law, so that by through God's love and God's mercy, we can be conformed to him. And we see this whole process at work through the season of Lent. This is the whole reason for Lent, that we, that we come back to what it means to be, to be a son, a daughter of God, to live in that and to live, to live a right, to live rightly or a rightly, I think rightly would be the right word there. Um, but it begins here. It really begins here in God's revelation to, to the Israelites through the Ten Commandments. It begins to show us what it means to be a human being and a human being after God. I just want to tease out the implications of this idea that the law is predicated on the identity of God. So uh, the, the main Old Testament books that contain the law of God are Exodus, from which we just read, and then Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So here you have the covenant code and Leviticus, you have the holiness code, Deuteronomy, you have the Deuteronomical code. Uh, but especially in Leviticus, it comes through that the reason for which these are given is because God is who he is. So it's kind of like a refrain throughout that book, you know, do this and that and omit this and that, I am the Lord, or I am, I am the Lord who am holy. So the justification for which we do these things is because God is who he is. And it's not like in an authoritarian sense, um, in the way in which you might ask your parents, like, why am I not allowed to eat sorbet at three in the afternoon? And your parents might just respond, because I told you so. And Father Jacob Bertrand is like, I can eat sorbet whenever I darn well please. Um, so it's not that he's just leaning on his authority. It's that he's giving us the, the setting in which, right? And the setting in which is divine intimacy. The purpose for which is that we would have a relationship with God. And so what does he do when he sets out these commandments? He reminds us of who he is. I, the Lord, am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that place of slavery. So these commandments, which we might associate with bondage of a certain sort, with being obliged, uh, with being conscience bound to carry them out, are in fact predicated on God's liberation of us from sin, right? Our, his leading us into the promised land, which is to say the life of grace, uh, and his drawing us into relationship with him. And if we want to abide in that relationship, then there have to be kind of like bounds delimited, or there has to be a, a demarcation of the place beyond which we cannot hope to enjoy that friendship any longer. So it's not so much that God says, I'm going to make you do a bunch of stuff because I'm powerful. It's that God says, I love you so much that I will make explicit for you the place in which you can expect to enjoy the continuance of that relationship, which is which is awesome. There's a religious sister, a, a sister of um, the St. Cecilia, a Dominican sisters, um, the Dominican sisters of St. Cecilia. There we go. I'll spit out the congregation's actual name. 
who is a marvelous educator. She teaches uh, second grade at St. Pius Elementary School here in Providence. And she has little hand signals for all of the Ten Commandments. And it's a kind of uh, memory aid, right, to learn them. And uh, they have some great gestures. I'm not going to go through them all. But one of the hilarious ones is, of course, when she teaches these second graders about uh, the commandment concerning adultery, because children... Of course, don't know what it is, but they kind of mime. They kind of mime the hand signals that she does, and she kind of uh, passes over it, saying, "Like you'll understand this when you're older." And so the children, of course, go home and recite the Ten Commandments to their parents. And their parents, every year, sister gets emails, phone calls, you know, from parents who think this whole thing is just hilarious. Um, you know, so there's a there's a sense in which we're very familiar like even as i'm talking about this you can you can feel the kind of tension like oh my gosh what's going to happen you know there's a there's a temptation to believe um that we're going to get canceled for teaching the 10 commandments um and you know what that is an entirely real possibility um because there is there are so many people today that think that these these commandments are arbitrary, that they're not really going to fulfill the human heart, that they're imposed on us from without, that they're not going to lead to our flourishing and to our happiness. And so you can see like even in an elementary school, you know, where a religious sister is teaching the most basic, the entry level requirement for religious understanding, comprehension and practice. Um, even in an elementary school now in 2021, um, this this uh, this teaching is fraught. What we have to realize is actually the truth of what sister manages to do, which is that um, the commandments are a part of us. You know, they can, they can be held in our hands. They can be grasped um, because they lead ultimately not to our subjection, not to our slavery, but to our freedom. Because obedience to the commandments is fitting for us as human beings because of the kind of things that we are. So like, yeah, you can listen to Father Gregory Pine talk about all these codes and code language and code talking, and that might be exciting to you. But the simple fact is that the commandments are perfective of who you are because you're a human being, and that obedience to the commandments will lead to your happiness, to your flourishing, um, to your ultimate supernatural fulfillment. All right. The roast counter is at one. I've been roasted once, so we're through one reading with one roast. Father Jacob Bertrand, will you take us to the second reading and not to the second roast? Mm. Indeed. <clears throat> A reading from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, Jews and Greeks alike, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, perhaps you've heard Fulton Sheen's homily on this theme. Uh, I know that it's kind of circulated through internet media, and um, it's also sometimes picked up in, in other settings. But uh, he takes this as a as a passage which testifies to um, Paul's kind of change of mind or change of heart after his encounter with the folks at Athens. The folks at Athens, I'm sure they call themselves folks. Um, the people of Athens, uh, as described, I think, in Acts 17, like he tried to use wisdom uh, of their philosophers, and um, they said, you know, we'll come back and listen to this man again, but they weren't converted to Christ. So in a, in a moment of, as it were, conversion or exasperation, you, you tell me which, uh, Paul resolves to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. And um, 
I think that, you know, there's a kind of tendency to read this as the wisdom of God is antithetical to the wisdom of the world, and, and the reason for which is because it's in the text. So I'm not trying to explain that away, but maybe just a, a small word on its continuity. Um, it's here we hear wisdom described as this kind of wisdom of the philosophers, this highest knowledge of people like Aristotle and Plato, and then we're told that Christ himself is wisdom. And I think that um, sometimes it can be difficult for us to find a way by which to bridge the gap. It's like, okay, I know some things, and then Christ says some other things, but like, where are they connected? Well, I mean, they're connected in the life of faith, because the life of faith is addressed to our minds, right? Uh, so we have we have a mind with which to know, and the virtue of faith opens our minds so that we can hear God, who is himself first truth speaking, uh, which is wild. But it presumes the nature that we've been given, because if we weren't intellectual creatures, we wouldn't have you know, even the capacity to have our minds elevated and healed. So we're not just saying that that human reason is, you know, completely obscured by sin, utterly without merit, just potentially going to mislead us. We're saying that human reason can be broken open by the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ to things beyond its present limitations and compass. Um, and one of the ways we experience that is, is by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are given to everyone at baptism, and specifically the gift of wisdom, which draws out uh, the love of charity in a peculiar way. It, it gives us a kind of sense for God's thoughts on the matter. Um, and it's not a sense that we like kind of reason through deductively and we say, you know, God thought, you know, this major premise and then this minor premise and then he drew this conclusion. No, we, we kind of have a feel for God's affection, as it were. And so I think that, um, <clears throat> you know, while the, while the tendency might be to read this passage as like reason is bad, I think that we want to look more in terms of reason being drawn into the very life of Christ. And if we rely overly much on our reason, we can experience some pitfalls and snares along our path. But if we give our reason to the Lord, it can be drawn to things sublime. Yeah, to to Father Gregory's comments about wisdom, I would just say that here in the text, um, the references to the Jews, the references to the people of Israel— um, can present, if we interpret it in the way that I'm about to propose to you, can present um, a kind of alternative error. If we cling to the wisdom of the Greeks, right, the desire to explain everything about our God um, away according to philosophical reason, or um, now I would say that the greater temptation is kind of scientific wisdom, right, to say that no, so, you know, so this is science and science explains everything, um, not its own first principles. Um, that's fun, future fun episodes, right? Um, but uh, but another temptation can be to say simply, well, faith is only faith is only something uh, supernatural that can only be testified to by miracles um, or emotional states. Um, and, you know, to present the other error, if that makes sense. You know, so if one error is to say that faith is, uh, if one error rather is to say that um, we must be so rational that there's no, there's no room for faith, the other error is to say that, well, faith defies every kind of sense of reason and purports only to us by means of signs and um, miracles and um, ghosts or something, you know, like other other kinds of phenomena, right? Uh, but, but we know that, that religious faith is more than that. Um, so one of the joys of my uh, young priesthood here has been to um, be an instructor in the Western Civ program at Providence College, which is really great. Um, it, it's been a lot of fun to teach that, to teach in that program because we teach all kinds of texts. And one of the images for the program that is often used uh, that, I, that I find so compelling is the image of the crucifixion, right? Because on Christ's cross, there are the three great languages of the ancient world, um, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And there in the cross, all of this is bound together. And so we see in the crucified Christ, um, the kind of binding of all things. And it's only 
um, by by clinging to to Christ and the crucified, that all of these errors can be can be purified of their weaknesses and be led, um, as Father Gregory said, to reveal um, first truth himself, first truth speaking. It's interesting as Father as Father Gregory and Father Patrick were explaining how Saint Paul um, sort of situates Christ, the the virtuous, the perfect, in between, in the middle, you know, in the mean, as the mean between these two um, extremes of approaching the world and things of faith, you know, as as the truth of Christ um, sits between sort of the the fideism of of the Israelites of the Jews here and the rationalism of the pagans and the Gentiles. Um, he he perhaps through his own learning um from from his sort of failed ish preaching at the Areopagus and Acts of the Apostles that you know actually it's it's Christ crucified as Father Gregory was saying who is um who who is the answer and as Father Patrick was explaining um St Paul so St Paul here reorients or he orients our our gaze um to the crucifixion to the sign that's that is that at once defies um, both the rationalistic and the fideistic um, desires uh, of us and of the Israelites and of the Gentiles. You know, it is the crucifixion, Christ's victory, Christ's death, and victory over death itself, and His resurrection. Um, that is that is the wisdom of God, and that um, you know that if we look back to the Ten Commandments, that that those Ten Commandments orient us to that it's fulfilled in the fulfillment of of Christ's death and resurrection. And I think what St. Paul does for us here is he he gives us this new orientation. He carries out, he continues to to preach and to um, explain this, this gospel um, notion of conversion, of metanoia, that like reminding us where we're supposed to look, um, and that is to the cross, and where we are supposed to go, that is to the cross, and where our victory is going to be, that is the cross, over and over again. I mean, it's the whole premise of the Christian life, the cross, the cross, the cross, because this is what Christ came for. And it's only in the cross, only in the cross, think of Mark's gospel here, it's only at the crucifixion that the first person recognizes, the centurion recognizes Christ as God, that it's it's only in the shadow of the cross and in the glory of the resurrection that our humanity is fulfilled, that we are fulfilled, that we're healed, that we receive God's mercy, that all of these things... Um, come come to be that are promised in the old covenant. So St. Paul is just he's just sort of hammering home this message of be sure to know where you're looking because the answer is there before you, but we have to but we have to look at it. We have to cling to it. All right. And with that we'll turn to the gospel which is taken from the gospel of John. Since the Passover of the Jews was near, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple area those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves, as well as the money changers seated there. He made a whip out of cords and drove them all out of the temple area with the sheep and oxen and spilled the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, Take these out of here and stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples recalled the words of scripture, Zeal for your house will consume me. At this, the Jews answered and said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, This temple has been under construction for forty-six years, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they came to believe the scripture and the word Jesus has spoken. While he was in Jerusalem for the feast of Passover, many began to believe in his name, when they saw the signs he was doing. 
But Jesus would not trust himself to them because he knew them all and did not need anyone to testify about human nature. He himself understood it well. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the most powerful lines in this uh, Gospel pericope, I think, is the disciples remembered that he had said this and they came to believe. Um, Remembering is such an important theme in the Gospels, um, in in all of the Bible. Um, it comes, this idea of remembrance comes to us um, from the nation of Israel, from the prophet's call, for example, to remember the, the faithfulness of God, to remember the works of the Lord of old, to remember how good God has been to Israel. So this is one of the calls of the prophets. And there's this idea, right, that um, offering sacrifice is an acknowledge on the part of human beings of this remembering of what the Lord has done of what, what the Lord God has done um, in one's own life. Christ's command um, to his apostles, of course, is to undertake the Eucharistic action in memory of him, and that by remembering, by anonesis, um, Christ is made present to us anew. So, so the, you know, there's this whole biblical background for the profundity of remembrance. Um, and remembrance is very important because when we when we do remember, we 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 can we can stop all of the vices opposed to belief, right? Um, so one one of the great vices um, that that counters that counters the kind of belief here that the apostles have once they remember is murmuring. We murmur against the Lord. This is kind of a classic monastic vice, and um, you can ask Father Jacob Bertrand and Father Gregory to confirm it is a it is a vice in religious life. Um, we are not to boast, but I am an excellent murmurer, very good at murmuring. Um, <laughs> so when we when we murmur, we sort of contest, you know, the st- the state that we're in. It's a it's it's a, a gentle word for complaining. There's rampant complaining, lots of complaining. Um, and the thing that counteracts that, of course, uh, that counteracts complaining is um, is remembering, especially remembering that grows out of um, the virtue of gratitude. Um, that thankfulness uh, for what the Lord has done. And this is the realization that is being recorded in the Gospels here. And it's not just in this place. This happens in many places in the New Testament where where something happens and after the resurrection, particularly because of the graces and of the profundity and um, the miraculous nature of the resurrection, the disciples are able um, to remember what Christ had taught them um, and, and to be changed by that. And I think that this is ultimately one of the beautiful calls of Lent, um, to repent um, and to remember truly what the Lord has done for us, not just remembering what God has done for us as a people by, um, you know, that little thing about becoming human and dying for our sins and saving the world, like not just remembering that, but like remembering in one's own life what God has done for us, remembering the people that the Lord has put in our lives to direct us, to remember the moments, um, you know, of, of profound prayer and connection um, to God that we've been given to remember, to remember, to remember. I just finished a, a novel today by a contemporary author named Kazuo Ishiguro, and it's called The Buried Giant. And um, he describes, it's a scene set against a kind of Arthurian backdrop. It's very delightful, very charming, kind of dreadful though and bleak at, at points, which those for me are synonyms because of my peculiar spirituality. Um, <clears throat> but um, there's there's this mist that covers the entire land through which the protagonists walk, and the mist makes them forget, effectively. Um, and as a result of which, they're very much destabilized in their relationships. So they're, they're constantly deceiving each other, and they're also very anxious um, or they're insecure about their loves. So uh, there's a married couple, and they are clinging to each other with great love and fidelity, but they are terrified at the prospect of their love failing, and in part because they can't remember where their love has been. 
So we, as Christians, kind of find ourselves in this state after the fall, because we're made in relationship to the Lord, and we have this kind of Godward gaze, which brings order to our interior life. But then by sin, we lose that Godward gaze. And as Patrick, Father Patrick drew attention to, uh, it's by the redemption of our Lord Jesus Christ that we recover that Godward gaze. Uh, it's by the redemption that he you know, brings about in our members that we are able to remember the God whom we ourselves have forgotten by sin. And so when St. Thomas talks about um, the reasons for the incarnation at the beginning of the, the long treatise that he dedicates to Christ, he, he describes all of these reasons uh, that kind of promote us in the good, he says. And he says that by coming, the Lord kind of augments our faith. He gives firmer basis to our hope. He kindles our charity. He himself sets an example. He makes us like God. Um, but all of these reasons effectively conduce to the fact that the Lord is giving us the virtues that are the interiorization of his own divine life, of his own divine attributes, and the purpose for which is that we can live like him, not so that we can be like independent of him, you know, kind of ubermenches to ourselves, but so that we can become him in relation to him. So this whole trajectory of remembering so as to be drawn up into the life of God is very beautiful, um, and it gives very much concrete shape to the, the general sweep of salvation history, which touches us, uh, which really deeply affects us in Christ. So... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped that you draw that point out. I'm less pumped about that point because <laughs> I'm going to talk about zeal and not remembrance, um, but that's it. Uh, I, they, yeah, they, they spoke enough about remembrance, which is good. It's great. It's true. Uh, but what I really, this reading always, the, the cleansing of the temple speaks to me because it justifies my perpetual kind of annoyed attitude towards everything that isn't like good and holy and beautiful. So... When people say things, well, Jesus was so nice all the time, I just, I give him a look and <laughs> no, he wasn't. Uh, and this is one of the times, but Jesus did it not, Jesus was annoyed here, not because he was sinful and broken, but just the opposite, because he was everything but sin and perfectly, obviously being true God and true man in uh, uh, conformed and in union with with his heavenly father. And, but it's his zeal here that we're still called to, um, called to, imitate and called to grow in and called to participate in but it's not a zeal it's a zeal that I think is is situated in in a in a suffering um, in a suffering uh, for the things of God um, in a suffering a sort of broken world and perhaps even a broken self in ways a sinful self um, because this this line zeal for your house will consume me is taken from the Psalms um, from Psalm 69 and in the Psalm the the referent there is not simply just zeal and kind of being excited or overworked about things but um, but it, it's the Psalm is about the the suffering righteous who await a savior that they suffer the 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 folly of the fallen world the folly of the devil um, for and in that a way to savior and you could see our you know if we understand the temple to be the dwelling place of god in the old covenant um and in for the israelites that when christ comes to the dwelling place of god to his own to the temple in which he dwells as a member of of the godhead of the trinity um when it's being desecrated we can see why he would um be upset that this place where that is supposed to be for the worship of God, um, that is supposed to be, if we're looking at these readings as a whole, a place for people to meet God, a place for those, the, the perfection of the commandments to be lived out is desecrated by, you know, money changers and, and vendors and these kind of things. We can see why 
Christ would be upset. Um, and then perhaps draw one more link to the Beatitudes. Um, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting that that this, all of this, that the cleansing of the temple, John, in the Gospel of John, it's situated at the beginning of the Gospel, whereas in the Synoptics, it's it's later on in the Gospel. There are different reasons, you know, scholars have different reasons as to why John has his in the beginning. Might there have been two cleansings? Is it John just using it as a way to bring out a point? But I think it's it's um, interesting to think of this cleansing um, at the beginning of of the gospel, at the beginning of the Christian life, as it were, or perhaps even towards. We're still in the first half of Lent, so towards the beginning of Lent, um, because uh, it is Christ who comes and cleanses. It is Christ who desires. You know, us who are also um, temples of the Holy Spirit to be cleansed and to be um, made perfect so as to live with God. The same, the same zeal that, that Christ has for the temple, Christ has for our souls. And Christ works for all, our souls. And that's why he died. And that same zeal, that same suffering that he would that he suffered on, you know, at the at the cleansing of the temple was the same zeal, and the same suffering that that was the reason is the reason for the incarnation and is the reason for the crucifixion is the reason for the resurrection and our Lord's working for this. Christ does this in our own lives, and if we could heed the advice of Saint Paul to orient our minds towards this, towards the cross, towards the cross, towards the cross, um, then this is you know this is the point of the Christian life. And by cooperating with God's grace, you know, God willing, we participate in in that joy of the resurrection that is to come. Amen. I was about to say hallelujah, but then I omitted it because I didn't want to, you know, shake the liturgical foundations of this season. But then I said it in saying that I omitted it, which leaves me in a peculiar situation. So in that conundrum, we will leave you with these are reflections on the uh, readings for the third Sunday of Lent. We hope that Lent has been blessed for you thus far. If it hasn't yet, as Father Patrick so uh, forebodingly predicted, well then, now's the time to turn it around because you've still got a good four weeks, and the Lord can make of that something beautiful. The Lord can make of that something very good indeed. Also, please share this with somebody whom you think might like uh, you know, a little encouragement in their own Lenten journey. If you've never shared a podcast before, on your podcast app, there's a little button that, that says share. Just push it, and it'll turn into a text message. So that, my friends, will be a great way by which to give someone else a pick-me-up. Please check things out on YouTube, where we are posting videos of a somewhat higher quality. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's pretty good, although Father Jacob Birch was recently making fun of me for it. But alas, you see this is a theme in our lives. Um, and also, please do check out our website, godsplanning.org, where you will find ways by which to support us uh, on Patreon and merchandise, uh, with which to deck out all members of your family with Easter gifts from the Godsplaining Easter Bunny. Uh, so, all of these things in mind, we'll now leave you with the prayer of the people for the end of the Mass of today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Direct, O Lord, we pray, the hearts of your faithful, and in your kindness grant your servants this grace that abiding in the love of you and their neighbor, they may fulfill the whole of your commands. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, we're praying for you. Please pray for us, and we'll catch you next time on God's Planning. Thanks for listening to God's Planning, a work of the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Joseph. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Leave a review on your podcast app, and visit us at godsplaining.org.